0: Welcome Welcome to to the the Time Time Bandits Bandits Minute. Minute. Time Bandits Minute is a podcast in which Duncan Shields and Curtis Blaze analyze and scrutinize the 1981 Terry Gilliam movie, Time Bandits.
1: One minute at a time. Here we are, minute two. We've got the opening graphics. And uh, I have been such a sucker for these opening credits and the storytelling involved the beat the story beats that are involved here just in the opening credits.
0: Well, and I've got my own story about the opening credits.
1: <laughs> I well, one thing that it wasn't apparent to me until after I'd seen the film, like after you see the film, you're like, "Oh, because right now we're literally flying through the map. right. And uh, it was just kind of some cool graphics when i first saw the movie and then afterwards i'm like oh because we've got yeah dotted lines arcane symbols astrological looking sort of things that we see on the map uh, but it's also the sort of thing that we see on ancient maps of the world or ancient maps of the heavens or celestial spheres or things like that and i re this is i really like gilliam's art direction and style here Like, this looks like it would be right at home in Life of Brian or Monty Python or something like that. Like, this really has the Gilliam stamp on it, and it's perfect for this.
0: We've got all of these different circles all over it, and the circles are sometimes within circles, and there's dotted lines connecting several circles. Yeah. The circles within the circles also have their own connection to different circles, and I wonder if we would be able to decipher this map. Does this mean ancient Greece does no. this mean Napoleon oh. you don't think so you know like is the circle are we seeing the circle here for Napoleon's time are we seeing a wormhole here that leads to the you know the fortress of ultimate darkness blah blah blah. Like,
1: yeah did did, did Gilliam he, actually sort of think it through think it through yeah like if, if, even if we can't decipher it would he be able to say well yeah technically that is that and that is that
0: this would be such a waste of resources, but I would love to get Terry Gilliam on just to talk about the
1: map. He'd be like, "That's your question? That's your question? Really? You want to talk about the map? <laughs> That's my entire career? This is this is." What you want to I'm,
0: a, I'm an 80 year old man.
1: <laughs> well, okay, I remember it like it this was is, yesterday. Really? This is, no. This is how you're
0: gonna. This is how you're gonna make me spend two hours of my time I could be with my kids. <laughs>
1: But, yeah, we've got, like, planets with faces on them. We've got orbits being depicted. Uh, it's sort of like a constellation map drawn by a sea captain in the 1500s or something like that. Like, this uh, right. this table would be right at home on a table uh, with a protractor and a sextant, you know, next to it, like, uh, with some paperweights on it to keep it from rolling around as the ship gets tossed in the waves. Like, I'm surprised there isn't a literal, you know, here-be-dragons monster poking up somewhere on this map.
0: And... If you actually look at the map later, what we're looking at as we push in and fly through this map is just a very small part of the map that they actually have in their hands.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: You can imagine the way that they closely examine the map later in the movie, that this would be, this entire thing we're flying through would be like a, a quarter inch of one corner of the map.
1: Yeah, like a quarter. That quadrant. helps you
0: decipher yeah. where you're going.
1: Yeah, it's it, so, so cool. There's some line drawings of clouds here, some shreds of like what looks like maybe a topographical map in the background, you know, sure. like. And I just love that we're flying through the map with this great sort of prog rock. Almost sounds like a prog rock soundtrack. One thing I really like about this is that it seems mostly made up. You know, right. like whenever there's a there's a there's a movie where you've got you know, a satanic bible or you've got like a a, a book of of, you know, this is how to summon the demons or or uh, or something like that. There's always a lot of, uh, you know, evil, satanic pentagrams in popular media, but they just throw together a lot of, like, Greek alphabet symbols and call it a day. Looking at it now under the microscope, I'm like, wow, this the only thing I sort of recognize is a trident-looking kind of symbol on its side, but everything else looks like it was just kind of scribbled down by Gilliam. I like that it's purely all made up.
0: One of the things I like about flying through the map, it suggests something... Uh, that I alluded to earlier, where the closer you look, the more you see. Yeah. Things reveal themselves, more dotted lines, more connections reveal themselves between these different wormholes. And that's what we're talking about, just to establish that. Uh, I think Duncan is in agreement. These time doors are, are wormholes between yeah. one thing and another. Yeah. And they're, uh, they're flaws put there, not put there, they're flaws in the universe.
1: Those wormholes
0: of- exist in both place and time. So in order to find it, you have to be in a place, but you have to be there at three o'clock in the afternoon.
1: Sure. Local time. The inference that this movie makes, which I think is at the core of it, is that the universe was cobbled together quickly and they did kind of a botched job of it. I think these are weaknesses that are being exploited. There's an up-to-date map of where the holes are that ostensibly need to be repaired. But they've taken this map and said, we're not going to repair nothing. We're going to go gonna on a it. bit of, we're going to do some heists, yo.
0: I think this is probably as good a time as any to talk about this. Are God's workers all little people?
1: Now that is a heck of a question. That is a heck of a question. Uh, and are the bandits themselves technically angels? Right? Right? Oh
0: the implications.
1: Right? I think... Uh, Yeah, well, maybe not because I don't think it's their job to, you know, reap souls, as it were. You know, like their job is just to build the stuff. So, and uh, were they just on Earth, right? If it's the universe, then were they in charge of foliage on, you know, the the third moon of Saturn? You know, like are they? uh, they Well, okay, we have a
0: supreme being, and he's in charge of the entire universe because we can see on the map that there are planets. Sure. So I would say that his workforce is in charge of the entire universe, not just Earth.
1: Now, what would happen? Like, that's if they went to Jupiter, uh, would they be okay? They had no spacesuit. Like, are they sort of like we they we see one to... of them dies in the movie, and then they we, can be killed. We, we talk about we they talk about one that that did die before the movie started. They talk about mm-hmm. poor old horse flesh. They're mortal, but the it's implied that they're thousands of years old, that they've been around since Mm -hmm. the beginning of time. Um, But maybe time's a flat circle, right? Like, I don't know.
0: (laughs) On Earth, they're clearly human. Yeah. And they're recognizably, I don't want to say a type of human, they're recognizably people that are little on Earth.
1: Yeah, dwarves. I think they're, they're dwarves.
0: Okay, so for sure, we are talking about human beings. They have lungs, they have... Yeah they have they they need to eat they enjoy drinking things they get that, drunk yeah. all of the things that humans do happen to the dwarves. but you're
1: right i wonder when someone like... when
0: someone had to maintain or create or 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 go do something on jupiter what happens to them
1: well how and also how in charge of their physical forms are they if they had gone to Corcaraway 6 and there was a, <laughs> a group of uh you know really tall pink densely skinned green-haired aliens living there and they had this exact same adventure on that planet would they all look like that what what's necessary for where they are
0: I think it's not that my my theory is that god is god the supreme being and he has earth and he needs a certain kind of creature to uh to work on earth things okay and that creature 5 has their own kind of things and he just has things that work there that can exist there
1: sounds great i th- i like that a lot better
0: because they don't they aren't ever taking any time to go oh you look very interesting on earth to each True. other there's no. no there's nothing going on like that
1: no <laughs> they are all they are all very lived in and used to their bodies that is uh that is definitely the impression i get
0: so if there if there are because the Supreme Being is taking care of the whole universe, so then that means if the bandits went to Jupiter, they would most likely die.
1: I think that seems to be the conclusion yeah
0: he would need, he would need Jupiterians
1: yeah, so to work this... on
0: to work on the giant diamond in the middle of the planet,
1: yeah, so <laughs> if this map is i don't this map is I guess a map of the entire universe, but they're just uh, exploiting the earth holes. So you'd have to be very careful when using this map not to end up in the wrong (laughs) place.
0: Yep. (laughs) Taking a close examination of it rather than just running around screaming.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So then we get a 7x13 white grid that snaps into place across the whole screen or like an 8x14. It's it's just a white grid that comes in across with the sound of metal doors closing. And then the letters time t-i-m-e they come in across they come across the top with music stings for each letter dun, 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 dun. and then just as i mean i don't know about you but just as i was thinking oh man am i going to have to sit through them doing all of that <laughs> for each letter of bandits then the word bandits comes up equidistantly spaced below in the grid as one word just bandits bang. Uh, And yeah, each letter has, I think, what are like typographical guides, you know, like when you're, when you're designing a font, you know, you want the, you want the circles to have, you want the arch of the capital T to be exactly the same on both sides and you want it to match the arch of the capital E, right? right? So there's these, these guides to go by. And I think that's what each of the letters has around them, which is why it would remind you of the Vitruvian man and other, uh sketches by da vinci cuz it's very similar in that respect like planning guides that they didn't erase but it yep. uh, which is sort of the
0: well and they look like blueprints
1: yeah and that's the that's the map that's yeah that's the movie you know that's it's it's in keeping with everything which i just it's one thing i love is this isn't just some silly graphics like on some level it is kind of some silly graphics but at another level this this opening sequence tells the story of the film
0: Every little thing in a Terry Gilliam movie means something. Yeah. He's not quite as uh, retentive as Stanley Kubrick in terms of what's in there, but he's very close.
1: Yeah. A lot of detail. Uh, and then uh, the letters, they pull back and they leave 11 square black holes in the grid And then the grid disappears and those 11 black square holes are overlaid on a picture of the universe, which is pretty cool because you can only see the black holes if they're traveling across like a non-black part of the universe picture. So like a star cluster or like a cloud nebula or something like that. This is kind of like I imagine how scientists have to look for black holes or dark matter. is They kind of have to look for like, okay, where's a patch of nothing? Where's a, where's a patch of blackness in the blackness that's actual blackness, (laughs) you know?
0: (laughs) Right. To me, this sequence right here is just so English. Having your story start in space and pushing in to uh, the place where the the person lives, it doesn't matter if it's a science fiction or a fantasy or if it's Danger Mouse. It seems like if it's (laughs) English, you're starting out in space and pushing into where the guy lives.
1: Yeah. And you know, there is nothing wrong with it.
0: It's a way to get into every story.
1: Yeah, we open space, zoom in <laughs> Earth, zoom in Hertfordshire, zoom in Paul's <laughs> house. You know, you're like, okay, right. I'm, in, time. I'm here, I'm with you, I am now along for the ride. Where the music gets a little trippy, it starts going it starts doing that kind of stuff, and we come up on Earth, and the eleven squares are overlaid on Earth, which I think is pretty cool. Because you're like, okay. These Those are the holes that they will be using on this planet. Uh, and then it crossfades down through the clouds to a suburb of jolly old England. It's a stock photo of Harlington in Bedfordshire, a few miles east of Milton Keynes. Kevin's house itself, which is different, this is a stock photo of harlington but kevin's house itself it's actually on haywood off bagshot road to the south of bracknell in berkshire you're talking
0: about the uh where they they filmed the the final scene
1: yeah nice so his uh his house is actually not that far from the privet drive location in harry potter which i think is great because i love the idea of harry potter having his adventures just down the street from Kevin, Kevin having his adventures, and uh, they're like, like maybe there's a child in each house just having the strangest time, but at the same time. So, but like unbeknownst to each other. And so nobody knows that each house is having a bizarre adventure. So this is Kevin's, and then there was Harry's, and there's, you know, A Monster Calls, and there's like, you know, where the Bridge to Terabithia or whatever. There's all these, right, all right. these, all these kids <laughs> having these. They all live in the same suburb. And uh, it's a, I love that idea.
0: Back in the late 90s, 2000s, as I was reading the Harry Potter novels, yeah, I totally pictured the um the Time Bandits world, Ter- like it, I pictured it taking place in Terry Gilliam's world. Sure, all this, all this, you know, shoddy stuff kind of working together. Oh yeah, like m- magic. Magic in that world is kind of depicted as the same way that Terry Gilliam depicts this alternate reality Earth that he films his movies in.
1: Totally. Like to there me. was, I think, there was talk of him directing one of the Harry Potter movies.
0: Oh, that would have been amazing.
1: Well, it would have been amazing, but it would have been the Terry Gilliam one. Right. <laughs> you know, like I think they could have had him direct all of them, but I don't think it would have been a good call to have him direct one of them because that would have that one would have been amazing. But it would have been, yeah, like the Terry Gilliam one. It would have been a whole other a whole other thing. So yeah. but I'm totally with you on that. What I think of uh, the Harry Potter world. I so agree.
0: we've never really, we've never really had this discussion. You are how old right now?
1: Forty nine. I'll be. Oh, okay. 50, so we're a year 50 apart. So, I'll be so, we basically
0: October. hit this movie at about the same time in our lives. I was ten. You were eleven. Something
1: yeah. like that. Yeah. Okay. Is it cuts to a, a close-up of an ad for a kitchen on a television set, and this is the Mar- Moderna Designs presenting the latest in kitchen luxury. It's the Moderna Wonder Major All Automatic Convenience Centerette. And apparently, this is what I love: is it'll give you all the time in the world to do the things you really want to do, which, if Kevin's parents are any indication, consists of sitting around watching TV, being blissfully unaware, and gossiping about the state of other neighbors' moderna wonder major all automatic convenience centerettes. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is uh, because there's a lot to be said for, like I've heard of that cycle where. You go to you. You drive your expensive Mercedes to your high-pressure, high-paying job every day, so that you can afford the payments on the expensive Mercedes that you use to drive to your high-paying job. Like it's a closed loop that you can be unaware of if you're if you're trapped in it.
0: There's such a message about consumerism here.
1: There's a, there's a message about consumerism. There's a message about. Uh, not laziness, but like, uh, indolence, you know, like there's this, yeah, yeah, there's this, there's this, like they are doing what they want to do right now. They are a hundred percent doing what they want to do. And what they want to do is sit and watch TV and read catalogs. You know, Well, and
0: I get the feeling from the way that she talks and the way that he talks, that they're kind of, they don't quite have enough money to just have anything they want.
1: No, but that's the thing. Like, I think there was a poll I read about where they asked, uh, something like 200 people, some of them were millionaires and some of them were, you know, homeless. And I was like, how much money would it take for you to be happy? And all of them said, double what I have now. Right. You know, and it, it didn't, it didn't matter how much money they had. They just knew that if I had double what I had now, I'd be happy. And, uh, I think, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, that's, that's something that's always really kind of stuck with me is, you know, if you have a lot of money, um, there's a lot of millionaires that, uh, feel like money's tight. Uh, there's always someone richer. So there's always someone more talented. There's always someone more beautiful. There's always someone healthier, you know, like whatever, there's always going to be someone better. It's a, it's a weird one. It's weird to think about, right? Because especially if you get born in the first world, you have like a virtually infinite supply of clean drinking water. That right there separates you from like seventy percent of the world. You know, it is like technically, I'm super rich. You know, compared to a lot of the a lot of the world. So it's relative, right?
0: We talk about we talk about the working poor in our country, and then there's a segment of the population that says, but they've got two cars, and they have six hundred dollar phones, and they've got three TVs, and they've got cable, and they've got you know a place to live and running water and they never run out of food and it's like yeah and everyone would be happier everyone would would feel like they were finally getting somewhere if they had twice as much as they do now
1: uh but that's one thing i like is that the 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 wonder major all automatic convenience centerette has a freezer oven complex Right, <laughs> that can make you a meal. That can, uh, and I just love that there's a freezer and an oven in the same appliance. I'm like, that's that's so Gilliam to me. But yeah, let's talk about the. Um...
0: Well, I don't really have much to say about about this except that what is exactly happening with Terry Gilliam wrapping plastic and everything?
1: He must have had a formative experience with plastic, or had, or grew up in a house that had plastic because it shows up. A lot in Time Bandits, but it shows up in uh, 12, Twelve Monkeys. Twelve Monkeys, yeah, like um, somewhat in Brazil. Oh, a lot in Brazil. It's, it's, it's plastic draped everywhere. Gilliam, I think, would have been a child when plastic was coming into common use. Like, because for a long, people forget that for a long time, plastic was for the rich. It was, a, it was, a, it was this miracle material. The, the applications were industrial for, or they were for like uh, rich people, no, oh, this is a plastic bowl. You know, this is from the right. future, future, future. But then they're once they figured out that oh, we could use plastic to make a billion of things for five cents, and we could sell them for five dollars each.
0: The concept of wrapping everything in plastic, particularly couches and furniture, um, is a thing that was real for people that are that weren't alive in the '70s, and as Kids of the '70s, we probably experienced it at our grandma's house, or at least I did. My grandma would wrap uh, the couch in plastic. We had to sit on couches that were wrapped in plastic, just like this. Did, oh, did you, you
1: experience that? No, I never did. That's might the have, thing. When I first might have been an
0: American the, thing
1: a, or a British thing. I'm not sure because, like, when I when I first saw this movie, I thought it was a Terry Gilliam invention. Like, I was like, oh, that's so that's hilarious that he came up with this bonkers idea. Uh, of wrapping the furniture in plastic. What a wild okay. touch. What an out there I... Terry Gilliam thing and it was my parents who were like, "Oh, that's oh, not no. that's not a <laughs> that's not a Gilliam invention. That's like a thing." This is the part that I'm really not clear on. This is the inherent paradox that I love about it. You keep the plastic on it to keep it fresh and good, but you never take the plastic off. So you never get to enjoy it. Yeah. Your your experience is
0: you've got your your sweaty skin <laughs> you've got your heat thrown back at you by this piece of plastic making you sweaty and uncomfortable and it's crinkling all the time and you never just get to be comfortable on the material as it's intended
1: yeah it's bizarre but
0: then the material never goes
1: bad but you don't know that it's a good looking couch because you only see it wrapped in plastic and i was thinking like do you take the covers off if you're having a party or entertaining guests is that the idea you know like well i've got a theory that grandma's couch only got wrapped in plastic when the
0: grandkids were coming over with all their spilly juices and their ice cream
1: bars. No doubt. Just yeah, totally Dexter, the entire room when the grandkids right. were coming over. Right? Like for sure. Yeah. I love the decor here. It's very cozy. And like, you know, the dad's reading his, uh, his mail order catalog and the mom is as well, but she's got a big dress. She's got her pink slippers. Uh, they're just chilling in silence while Kevin is reading on a stool in the background. She's he's, got pearls on. Yeah. so And, he, and her hair got, is made up. He's wearing a tracksuit over his, it looks like a suit, like a button-up right? shirt. Right? right. But it's a tracksuit. So it's like wearing pajamas over his work clothes, kind of thing.
0: <laughs> I just love so it. He, this
1: whole, this tableau is like, uh, just, or it's, like, it's almost like a National Geographic picture of life in Britain in 1982. You've got Kevin, and I love that you've got the, the parents looking at the TV. Kevin's in the background deeply engrossed in a book. The whole relationship is set up right there. Their whole vibe is just Gilliam has a lot to say about the banality of evil, you know, like the sort of yeah. it's commonplace. There are horrifying things about our existence that are commonplace in every family. The house that he's in, the house that Kevin's in right now with his parents doing what they're doing, is a scene that's being copied in every house in that entire in that entire suburb. Everybody's come home from work. They're watching the same game show, reading the same magazines. And hopefully, you know, the only difference is going to be what the kid is doing. So I think there's like a... a, He's really trying to say something. I think this goes even deeper. Yeah?
0: What they're doing right now is just the 1981 version of what we're doing right now. You know, everybody, everybody has their own thing that they're into... And then there's the one sort of common thing in the house that's going on that no one's really paying that close of attention to because they're all into their own thing. Yeah. And nobody's paying attention to each other. Yeah. they're only half listening to each other. And yeah. that's going on with our phones right now. Absolutely. And that was going on, that's going on in this scene right now. And yeah. uh, this is the place I want to talk about this, I think. I okay. I thought I was going to wait until the very end of the movie to bring this up, but and and we can talk about it then too because 111 hours from now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll forget that we talked about it. Yeah, Yeah. I've run into a lot of people saying that the end of this movie screwed them up. When the piece of evil that crosses over into Kevin's real life world is in that oven and the parents touch it and they explode. And then Kevin doesn't really seem to be upset by that. I think this scene right here is why he's not upset. His parents really don't
1: pay attention to him. They're not really... Any of none of them are really into each other, do you think he comes across as not upset when his parents die at the end of the film?
0: I think he comes across as confused
1: and um, he would be upset later. I thought he came across as uh, deeply 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 wounded and shot really is why, okay. which is why that ending uh, messes me up okay but yeah, so that's that's but i I understand what you're saying like and that's I think that's what's in this movie is. Like if at the end of the film you think that the parents get what's coming to them, or B, well, you think that Kevin part of is, Kevin's mildly disturbed by watching his parents explode, then you're okay with the ending. But I was, I did not feel either of those things. I thought his parents were evil, but they were, they were, they were that that evil that we're all at the mercy of. They, they weren't they weren't me. bad people. They were just inattentive parents, and God knows there's enough of those in the world. You know, like they weren't cruel to him on purpose right that's and so I don't think they deserved what they got and I think he's an orphan now which is horrifying I think it's an awful note to, to end the film on but like you know you thought it was a really good a good way to end it so I thought it was a great way to end it but yeah. here's the deal I'm acknowledging that
0: that we have a difference of opinion of how Kevin came out at the end of this movie yeah um, it Um obviously makes sense that he would be horrified by watching his parents explode in front of him that's not what I'm saying yeah but I think there's sort of a disconnect between the members of this family, and Definitely. that that he would be more in shock and then recover relatively quickly, versus had he been close to his parents. I hope you know if if they were having family game night right now, that ending would be a lot different, for sure. You know, for sure. And also, think, and I, there's yeah, one I more think, scene yeah. in this. There's one more scene in this movie uh, when they're in the Fortress of Ar- Ultimate Darkness. I think that that is a through line that starts here goes there and then ends at the end of the movie that I that I'll get into as as yeah. we get
1: into that minute and I think I'll
0: I think I'll be able to convince you
1: <laughs> okay yeah like I like the ending and I sort but the the groundwork that was laid for it you think it's it's inappropriate for, the, for I think that. It, no I think it's the groundwork was too subtle
0: oh okay I didn't feel it maybe okay I I should probably have this confession right now I have I have, in one way or another, consumed this movie, whether it be a, be via novel, or comic book, or audio novel, or listening to the audio of the movie, or just watching the movie, maybe, maybe hundreds of times. Sure. I mean, I've given this movie a lot of
1: thought. I wonder if, since your first experience of it was audio, that helped you think that the ending was good. <laughs> because you, I, you I wonder that, too. You didn't see the parents. They were just concepts. They were, well, they were. That's interesting to me. I don't know. I wonder. Yeah, I wonder. I'll have to think about that. So the mom and dad are played by David Daker and Sheila Fear, F-E-A-R-N. And uh, what's cool, well, David Daker, just to go, this is my blurb on David Daker. He's got 100 credits on IMDb. Seems he's have, been in just, yeah. Yeah, he's got a habit of playing policemen, crooks, barmen. You,
0: you don't know how many times you've seen this guy.
1: Yeah, exactly. And he was he was in this movie and films called Two People and Aces High. He's another working character actor. He's best known as Harry Crawford in the hit series Boone. And he played Tommy McKay in the monster hit Only Fools and Horses and Jarvis in Porridge sheila fern has 54 credits on imdb she but she was in that old tv show the avengers with dame diana Rigg, and a film called the likely lads which was a a a big british film she's another accomplished british actor she's been in a bunch of shows like paul temple Crown court emergency ward 101 thriller walter Z z cars uh she was also in east of ipswich by michael palin in 1987 so um
0: I'm not sure they have
1: any scenes together here in the movie, but maybe they met. Honestly, that's the only one I even recognize, and Uh, I don't think I've seen it. I I just heard heard of it. But the writer of Likely Lads, Ian Lafrenet, said of her, she was sexy and funny, and she knew John Lennon. Sheila, (laughs) Sheila found time for everybody, and now I think of her with great attention. It doesn't seem like she has as many film credits as David Daker, but she seems like she really knew a lot of people. And looking at old pictures of her, she's got such a great face. And there's a there's a recent picture of her on uh, wallofcelebrities.com, and she's still got such a great smile and so much life in her eyes. And like you said, she seems like a, a just a, a, a real good time, a lot of fun to be around. Another person I'd love to sit down and just have a chat with, I think. But she fell off a mountain at the age of 48. In 1988, and uh, she broke her leg pretty badly, which gave her a limp. uh, That would have been, yeah, okay. Yeah, and that messed up her acting opportunities after that. But apparently, she is 80 years old, and like David Dacre, still kicking. Yeah, she she was a beauty. She sure was. If you want to talk, we can talk now about the differences between the script and the comic and the novel, if you want to get into that. I'm dying to. Okay. So in the script, like we said, we got that voiceover. Then we close in on the typical English suburb, same as the movie. But unlike the movie, we come in on Kevin playing in his room with his toys. So he's got some, uh, some First Nations people, or Indians as they're referred to in the script, uh, fighting against spaceships, which is super cool. Before he's yeah. called, uh, before he's called for dinner, and the mom pulls out TV dinners from the microwave, and Kevin's like, "What's this?" And she says, "Well, it's chicken, Duchess potatoes, and carrots." And Kevin says, uh, "Which one's the chicken, right?" And, so, <laughs> and then the mom laments the fact that they don't have a, a warmed-up TV dinner opener, and that right? She's, uh, that she's exhausted after opening the dinners for everybody, which I think is a, a pretty. Pretty sick burn, as they say, and uh, but it, it fits right in with what Terry Gilliam's going for. The stuff, the
0: stuff in the comic that's visible uh, on Kevin's bed is very similar to what ended up in the movie. Yeah. He's got the pictures all over the wall. It matches up with his room in the movie. The walls across from the outside window, uh, the, uh, the ca- you know the cabinet, the cupboard that the that the doors come out of is at the foot of his bed. All of that stuff. He's got the tank, he's got on his bed on the comic, you can see the tank, the spaceman, you can see uh, a soldier, he's got a laser gun, he's got all of his books, he's got his book of adventure, he's got what appears to be the Invisible Man book on his bed, and this, along with the movie, when we get to that minute, does a lot of foreshadowing of what we're going to see. In fact, yeah, the whole movie is contained in his room. We'll talk about that later, though. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely, it's all there, and yeah, we've got this. It gives you the ability to believe the entire movie was a dream until that last scene.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's another reason why the ending kind of freaked me out. It's because I was fully in the O. Oh, you're was you're all fully in the O, oh, that's a dream. Or, you know, the or was it question mark. Anyway, <laughs> the credits, you know, but then his parents literally die. And I was like, oh, my God, what, what just happened? But, yeah, we've got in the comic, we've got the same which one's the chicken conversation. And uh, but she also mentions that she saw a lovely washing machine yesterday that spins, dries and tells the time in three major cities, which is which God, talk about foreshadowing that is happening now. That's happening. Yeah. But why would you need to know the time in Beijing if you're if you're washing your clothes? You know, like I don't know. Why?
0: Why would you need
1: to? Why would you need to be on? The, why would you need
0: to have a coffee pot that's hooked to the Internet?
1: Fair enough. You got you got me there. <laughs> Exactly. You
0: know, it's it, it comes back to Terry Gilliam just being really prescient about consumerism. Yeah. Because the reason we have our washing machine hooked to the internet now is so that our smart appliance knows when we're out of soap and can just automatically reorder it for us.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of um, you know people who could have predicted that this would happen. It's like lots of people did. And then in the novel, uh, it just. There's no opening narration. It's just, it opens with Kevin being called for supper. So there's no narrator monologue about the Supreme Being. We get the same TV dinner conversation, but... Almost exactly the same, yeah. Almost exactly the same. But we do find out that the parents' names are Mr. and Mrs. Lotterby, whereas we didn't uh, film itself, they're just vomit. Kevin's mother, Kevin's father. Kevin Lotterby, or to some people, Kit! <laughs> I kind of I'm happy that they cut the opening narration myself. I think it kind of dates the film and makes it too cheeky. or Yeah, I think it would I I don't think it would have worked. Plus plus the
0: narration that they had kind of set up a already set up sort of a, a plot hole to speak of. Like if the entire universe exists all the way through time both ways, then how can there be the beginning of time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's dramatic, but I think it, it undermines the concept of the movie.
1: The Time Bandits Minute is a fan project hosted by Curtis Blaise and Duncan Shields.
0: The movie Time Bandits was created by Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin and is presented by Handmade Films.
1: The novel Time Bandits was written by Charles Alverson and is based on a screenplay by Michael Palin and Terry Gilliam. It is published by Severn House Publishing.
0: The comic book adaptation Time Bandits was created by the team at Marvel Comics and published by Stan Lee.
1: The screenplay Time Bandits Movie Script was written by Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin. It was published by Doubleday Dolphin Books.
0: You can find more of us at TimeBanditsMinute.com or text us at 712-830-7373. You can also find us on Facebook at Time Bandits Minute, the podcast.
1: Thank you to the Star Wars Minute guys for graciously allowing us to steal the format.
0: If you would like to listen to other Movies by Minutes podcasts, check out moviesbyminutes.com. Join us next time for Minute 3 when you hear Dad say, Well, at least we've got a two-speed hedge cutter.